Good evening. Tonight's scripture is Acts 8, 4 through 8, 14 through 17, and 26 through 40. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and received the Holy Spirit. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a lamb he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from becoming, being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, the, as he, passed through he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Will you join me as we pray? Oh God, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that you would enlighten our heart, that we might see uh, the hope to which you've called us, uh, the riches of our glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable power of your spirit. In Christ's name. Amen. Sometimes um, goodness, the goodness or beauty of a message is evidenced not just in the content of it, what it says, but to whom it's sent. To whom it's sent. For example, in a week, the Christian calendar will celebrate what's called Advent. And when you think about the first coming of Jesus Christ, the good tidings, the good news of God sending his son to earth, the, the content was sent to lowly shepherds first. It wasn't just the content of the message, but to whom it was sent. And that communicated something about it. Well, in our passage... 
the gospel comes to two very different groups. And it highlights something about the nature of this gospel. The nature of the gospel and the message of Jesus Christ. And these two groups, we might say, were viewed in Israel. One of them, beyond redemption, the Samaritans. And the other one, beyond reach, the Gentiles. And this is how the gospel breaks through. It's the first time now it's breaking out of Jerusalem and the surrounding villages. And what Jesus said to his apostles, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth is taking place. And I think this ought to encourage us. I think it ought to encourage us. I've been in many discussions Uh, more than uh, a few recently that talk about um, the gap between the culture and the church, right? Where the culture is in terms of belief and the church, how uh, the Christian faith is not only regarded, uh, it was one day regarded as irrelevant, now it's more regarded as immoral. And... um, I find that Christians, including myself at times, getting discouraged about the power of the gospel, the ability of the good news of God's grace to reach and touch people. And I think it's really important that we get the original context, right? We need to go back. In this first century, this group of Christians were a minority within a minority, right? The Jews in Israel were already under a subjection to Rome, but now the Christians are even a subset of that. I mean, they are off the radar in terms of something that people would accept. They were considered to be strange, cultish, deluded, and non-pluralistic, immoral in that day. And yet, the message and power of the gospel is drawing thousands of people. And even when it moves out of its typical religious context, even those people are being drawn. We we have no reason to be disheartened and discouraged if you're a Christian here. And if you're someone looking into the Christian faith, thank you for being here. Because it is a gospel worth your exploration. Now, what I want to look at is not just this gospel message, the content, but to whom it went, as I just said, but also how it went. And now we're making a shift in the book of Acts, where uh, previously people that were coming to faith that talked about conversion of crowds, but now we're beginning to hear about individual stories. So let's begin with who this good news finds. And as I mentioned, the first group, it finds a group of people that are considered by many in Israel of that day to be beyond redemption, and that was the Samaritans. In the Gospel of John, Jesus goes out of his way into Samaria to engage a woman at a well. And as he talks to her, One of the things she says is, uh, in a sense, 
why are you asking me for water? Why are we talking? Jews don't associate with us. And she was right. They don't associate with Samaritans. Now, what's the background here? Now, Samaria was the capital of the northern tribes of Israel, right? Israel split into a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. And Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom until Assyria came and conquered it. Most of the Jews there were deported, but some remained. And then Assyria repopulated the place. And over those many, many, many years, Jews would begin to marry Assyrians. So marriages became uh, interreligious or mixed. And they were regarded by those in Israel as mongrels or mudbloods. Now, let me clarify something. I don't think books and the movies are the same, all right? If you were here last week. Anyway, enough. If you weren't, you don't need to even think about that, okay? But over time, uh, the Samaritans then began to build their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And then they also morphed or mutated their theology where they began to reject all of the Old Testament except for the law of Moses. And so there was great hostility. In fact, there would have been greater hostility between Jews and Samaritans than there would have been Jews and Gentiles. And it flowed both ways. When Jesus reached uh, that town of Samaria through the Samaritan woman, they received him, but in other towns, he was rejected. So there was a lot of heat going back and forth. When the disciples find Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman, they're astonished. And when Jesus' uh, opponents wanted to get, get really nasty, they would say, now we know that you have a demon and you're a Samaritan. So this is where things were at, right? Disdain and hostility. They were seen as beyond redemption. I mean, we're getting into unthinkable stuff here. What, you know, what would, what would blow your mind? What group of people would blow your mind if they came to be followers of Jesus Christ? That's the mindset. Or another way to look at it, uh, if you think about the prophet of Jonah, and some of you know that story, and I don't have time to go into it, other than Jonah didn't want to preach to some people that God planned to bring repentance to. He refused to go, and when God brought repentance, Jonah was angry. He was mad and said, I knew that you were going to be gracious and not give these guys the judgment they deserve. And so I think one of the ways we begin to ask ourselves... Who is beyond redemption in our own minds is, who gets you angry? Who bugs you? Who arouses sort of your disdain where you just want to shake your head and go, oh, they exasperate you. Who's on the other side morally, politically, income bracket, racially, whatever it would be? You see, it's not that the Samaritans are beyond God's redemption they're beyond the desire of the people to see them redeemed. And it's the same with us today. Tell me, to, of whom in this world does God not desire redemption? 
Well, he tells us God wills all to come to him. Nobody. So the question is, uh, so I would say let's, pay, let's start to pay attention into that group or people that makes us just shake our head and disgust and start praying there. That's where we need to begin. But thankfully, Philip doesn't respond uh, to, he doesn't respond like Jonah does. He goes, and I don't know, did Philip have a special sensitivity because he was a Hellenist Jew, and so, you know, they were a minority within the new Christian movement? You know, sometimes people that have felt on the outside, right? All of us, in fact, have felt on the outside in some ways, and you you tend to have a special sensitivity for that group. And so uh, he goes and he preaches, and this is kind of a strange little passage. I, I cut out one other part, Simon the Magician, which is, I love that passage, but there's so much here we got to get through, I had to, to leave it out. But as he comes, he preaches with great success, but it says that the Lord withholds his full measure of the Holy Spirit until two senior apostles show up. Now, what's going on there? And there's a couple, I think, different plausible explanations for that. First of all, as I said, this is the first time the gospel's been proclaimed outside of Jerusalem in the villages. And so the apostles are like, I got to see this. What's going on? But also, it was important for the Samaritans to know that they truly were fully embraced within this new covenant community. You know, with all that hostility, it was important for the apostles to show up and God withholds the full measure of the Holy Spirit till they know you are identified here. And it also would have guarded them from a separatist mindset of just forming their own church, right? I mean, Philip could have preached, left, and they could say, well, we're going to just keep doing our own thing. But God moves in there and he wants to make sure that uh, they understand the obligation of their inclusion, but also the privilege of it, the blessing of it. Philip comes and he preaches words of grace to a group of people who no one would have thought would be receiving that grace. Those that thought he was beyond grace. And I was, um, I was thinking today, uh, there's been some articles about uh, the recent uh, going home of Michael Gerson, you know, the speechwriter and uh, Christian who had... Um, written a lot, been in D.C. over a long time, died of cancer recently, and wrote op-eds in the Washington Post. And um, one of the things that I think, uh, whether, whether he was speaking to his opponents or whether you agree with everything he said or I agree with everything he said, What was remembered about the way he talked, I think, is memorable. Uh, An editor of the Washington Post recently this week recalled Gerson often evoked a New Testament verse, and it was this one. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. We have to assume that when Philip went... He didn't just go with the content. He went with the heart of grace, right? Words of grace. And what strikes me about this verse, and I confess I'd never really seen it before until this week, 
It's not just grace being the attitude of the heart. It actually says that it's, it, 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 it leads to enlightenment, meaning this. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer people. And so you actually won't be able to be an effective witness unless the redemption of God is working in your heart. What I'm saying is, it's just not enough to open your mouth. We have to open our hearts to people. And that gets really hard when you talk about, well, this group that I'm sort of like, if they never got redeemed, I wouldn't care. So the word goes to those beyond redemption, but also those beyond reach. You go to the book of Ephesians, the way Paul talks about Gentiles, the gospel coming to Gentiles, as he says, they were far away. Now, they were right there. They were near. But what he meant is, I mean, they were far away lost. And God sends Philip with a message of grace to a Gentile, an Ethiopian, an African court official who's prominent and powerful, works in the court of Candace. That's not name, that's title. That's the title of a queen mother. And so this is a prominent guy, and we're told he's a eunuch, which would have meant he was castrated from youth to serve in the court, and they did that because the thought was, you know, there would be no distractions. You would serve faithfully and purely. And the fact that he had just been in Israel suggests that he was a God-fearer, rather a Gentile that worshipped the Israel God, but not a full convert. But as a eunuch, the law of Moses would have said, that he was barred from the inner court. You know, the Old Testament has lots of these laws where uh, when there were imperfections, people could only go so far. And it may have been in this case because a a pagan practice was uh, to castrate. And so it suggested some sort of pagan affiliation. Now, when modern people hear that, we're immediately offended. Because uh, our attitudes are actually exactly opposite than they would have been in the first century. A modern person goes, who is God to say that I can't come into his presence? In the first century, it would have been, who am I to come into God's presence? And so God is actually trying to teach something through these things of his holiness And his purity, which relates to all of us. These object lessons were to instruct everybody in Israel. And that makes what this official is reading all the more poignant. You can imagine, you know, he can't go as far as he wants to go, but he has a scroll, Isaiah. And he reads the portion of Isaiah, actually, that talks about a day and a promise, a chapter where God will grant devout eunuchs a heritage better than sons or daughters. And an everlasting name, right? And people hoped that their name would go forth through their sons and daughters. And so he's reading about this promise of the grace of God, where someone like himself will have a name, a heritage better than a favored son or daughter, and have a name that will, will live on forever. And this, of course, is the promise of the gospel that comes through Jesus Christ, right? 
Paul says those of us in Christ, those that come to know the unique Son of God, those that come to uh, embrace the unique Son of God, get the name and the mantle of favored sons and daughters and a name. You know, this is what's so sad when we seek to make a worldly name for ourselves. Because you know what's going to happen to that name. I mean, it may happen a generation or two generations or even a lot, but it's going to be wiped out. What a sad thing to, to spend your life, right? Living to make a name here. But he also reads about how a servant of Yahweh will come and suffer intense humiliation, affliction, injustice. And you could say the Ethiopian suffered injustice when he was castrated as a youth. I'm sure he had nothing to say about it. And that this servant would be killed for the justification of many sinners and he would be vindicated through his resurrection. And it's this passage that the officials reading out loud, because that's what they did back in those days, common practice. And it just so happens he's reading because he understands Greek from the Greek version of the Old Testament. And Philip just happens to speak Greek. God knew what he was doing. Sends Philip there. Philip goes, hey, what are you reading? It begins a conversation. Do you see the thoughtfulness of God in now reaching those that are outside of it? You know, there's a, well, I'll get to that in a second. And so, um, who does the gospel go to? It goes to those that are often thought beyond redemption and beyond reach. And again, I feel like for those of us that are professing Christians here, we really have to recover our belief in that. We really have to recover our belief that God's arm is not too short to save. Because you and I are in this room. I'm in this room. God's heart is not too hard to save. Even if Christians' hearts get hard. But let's talk for a moment how the Lord brings forth the good news. And a couple things here. And I think they're instructive to us as we think about how do I begin to share good news, the good news of God's grace. Well, the first thing is, as I mentioned, God uses Philip, who is sort of a minority within the, the larger majority of the church, to reach new people. He takes Philip, who can speak Greek, and, who pro- and, and is not afraid to move into an area that's unfamiliar. He could have very much pulled a Jonah and said, I'm not going. He doesn't. He moves in. He's willing to cross cultures, Right? He's willing to be out of his safe space. I mean, they've just been persecuted. I, I, you know, what is your impulse when you're under fire? You know, my impulse when I'm threatened is, right, I'm going to circle the wagons. But he goes out. And then second of all, we see that God uses disaster to send forth the gospel. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, there's a discussion that goes on, and uh, I'm, I'm so, I sort of go back and forth on it. And it's like this. Uh, 
was, did Jesus allow the persecution to occur because the apostles were already getting comfortable not doing what they should have done? Right? They were supposed to bring it outside of Jerusalem, and Jesus actually named Samaria and other places. But on the other side, the sympathetic side, you could say, well, you know, it's not like they were sitting around just like uh, watching Netflix. There was a lot going on. I mean, the church had added thousands and thousands and thousands of people. But either way, as God is prone to do, he leverages disaster and evil to bring about goodness and redemption, to bring the gospel out. Uh, it's similar to, um, I was reading one uh, resource this past week, and uh, in 1949, the expulsion of missionaries from China after communist takeover. And it seemed like, oh, this is a disaster. But what happened? All those people fanned out into different parts of Asia. And the gospel just ran. The good news of God's grace ran all over the place. Someone has said, uh, personal disasters are ways for the gospel to spread in our lives. In some ways, the worst thing for the spread of the gospel is success in a comfortable life. It's often the case the way God will spread the gospel through us is through brokenness, right? It's, it's brought humbly. It's brought authentically. It's light through cracked ground, through a cracked heart. People are attracted. They're drawn to it because it gives them hope. And it speaks about the world that they're in. The gospel often spreads through our weakness and our brokenness not our strength. And by Christians willing to go into places where they won't find sympathy. Right? You have to have a certain security in your sonship and daughtership. You got to have a certain confidence in God's love for you to walk into places that are threatening and to speak the gospel, right? To be able to speak up to a neighbor and say, this is who I am. Or maybe speak up and say, you know, I actually, I think that's a, I think there's more to it than what you're saying. Third, so God not only uses someone who's on an outsider that can relate, he uses disaster, but he uses non-clergy people, lay people. We're told that all but the apostles had been scattered. The apostles were still in Jerusalem. And that those that scattered went about preaching, and that word for preaching is actually the Greek word for evangelism. They went about evangelizing. Now prior to this, they just brought their friends to hear preaching. But now God sends them out to actually equips them to go out and preach the gospel. And it's not like, you know, they're just sort of off on their own because after Philip preaches the gospel, he sends word back to Jerusalem. The apostles are still overseeing things. But, you know, you basically have what Ephesians says, which, you know, that pastors and teachers equip the saints for the work of ministry. But what, what it ought to do is it ought to encourage us in the ministry that God has given. I mean, this is so early in the church and God already has non-professional vocational people doing powerful ministry. The priesthood of all believers. 
This is a unique part of Christianity. Another outcome of the expulsion of the missionaries in 1949 was the indigenous Chinese took ownership of the church and it exploded. Right? You know how to speak good news into your context like I don't. Right? God God has, he tells us, for those that are believers, God has good works in advance. Good works for you to do that no one else has. They're free. They got your name on it. Your call to it. And so he begins this work through the community. Fourthly, he sends Philip first to urban centers. Right? And you see this strategy throughout the New Testament because cities are often radiate influence, Right? But Philip just doesn't go to the part of the urban centers where, you know, he doesn't just like go to Nat Stadium or, you know, the best uh, restaurants in town. You know, it just, he, he, he's going purposely to the people that are often overseen and overlooked. You know, I, one of the challenges um, uh, I knew we had early on when we planted this church, and, and just because I myself was going through it, um, and that is, you know, it's easy to come to D.C. and see one D.C., right? D.C. is at least a tale of two cities, if not three. It's easy to see the professional city and the city of amenities, basically the city that I came to conquer, or the city that I came to see or that attracted me. And that's, you know, I'm not trying to condemn. I, I said to someone this week, I was talking to him, I said, you know, when I got asked to come plant a church here, I came for both good and for bad reasons. You know, I came for probably for for wholly pure reasons, but I also came because I was like, I like cool global cities. I think I'd like to plant a church in a cool global city. I think I might like to be known for planting the church in a cool global city. You know, maybe it wasn't that, but I think you get the point. It's a, it, it, one of the ways God's people serve is we come into a place and we go. I see who you see, God. I see who Jesus saw. And I love and I minister to those people. Two more. Uh, We see also in the way that Philip does this. You know, Philip doesn't answer questions not being asked. Right? He actually starts with a, we, we, we don't have a lot of the conversation, but he starts by saying, hey, what are you reading? You know, he doesn't start a conversation and then go, you know what really gets me mad? You know, insert your favorite pet issue, you know. He gets right to the thing. You know, they're focused on the main thing, which is the gospel. He asked him, what's on his mind? What are you reading? What are you thinking about this? Obviously, the eunuch felt freedom to be able to say, who is this talking about here? There was actually uh, room for him to speak and ask questions. One-to-one discussion. You know, um, I, we always want to labor for our church to be a place that's accessible for anybody that comes. Intelligible, right? Whether someone is in the Christian uh, circle or not. But in this day and age, you know, church may be step 20 for someone in their journey. With so much less shared. And, and uh, we can't underestimate the power of the one-to-one conversations that happen, right? Right? That's what's happening here. 
And that, you know, we don't, we don't get to know the spread of the gospel in Ethiopia after that, but I'm sure it was marvelous and amazing. And even today, right, you can see evidence. I've met many, many Christians from Ethiopia. Uh, he also, and we, we can also assume that he presented it in a way where the person felt safe enough to ask questions, right? And they were free to do that. But then this is important too. As the coins are dropping, he actually helps him act in faith. He helps him move him to a decision. It's not just endless conversations, right? He said, but I, I was hearing someone recently said, and um, they were talking about their conversion to Christian faith. I forget where it was or what it was, but uh, the person said, uh, yeah, you know, and then I became a Christian because the person asked me if I wanted to. And I was like, you know, that's interesting. You've heard a lot. Are you interested in becoming a follower of Jesus with all your doubts and your questions? But the last point is what we've talked about, which is Philip had a holistic ministry. He had been doing deeds of mercy, deed and word, right? People, just like with Jesus, people would come, and it wasn't just, he was like, next, you're healed. You know, you got to imagine that when, when, Jesus, when these people lined up until they're having to light candles, I mean, suffering has a story, right? I'm sure he, he slowed down and said, well, tell me about your story. And they could feel his compassion. Right? And he, he doesn't belittle their physical need. Now he hopes that that taste of compassion will actually lead to them seeing they have a greater need. And a lot of them didn't. They just left. But there were those that did. And so as a church, that's one of the reasons so important that we're serving the physical needs of people Right? They're tasting, they're, they're experiencing our compassion as we bring the word of God's compassion on souls. And then at the end, I love this part. This doesn't happen often. God, like, uh, aspirates him. What is that? What, uh, you know, what's the, uh, the word? I'm trying to redeem myself with the Harry Potter thing, okay? <laughs> you, you know, like when they spin off. What's that? Yeah, that. That kind of happens. I mean, I've seen that in the movie. Does it happen in the book? <laughs> happens, happens in the book. Okay, good. But yeah, Philip, he goes. And you know, when I read that, I think, man, look at the Spirit's urgency to meet and convert and minister to somebody else. He's like, Philip, we got more work to go. Let us never believe that God isn't, you know, God's vision for people to coming to know him so far exceeds ours could ever be. Let us never think we're going, come on, God. This is, again, a modern way to think about God. God, I either God, I, uh, it's better for me because, in truth, I'm disappointed because I wish you were more compassionate like me. 
you know, I wish you, you really kind of were like me, but because you're not, and I can't deal with that disappointment, I'm going to make you a force. I'm going to make you something else. I'm not saying that's the only reason. But let us never be fooled to think that God's compassion soars above ours. His grace soars above Just take a sunny day. Just take his daily mercies, right? He just loves to do that. So all that to say, um, this December, I had mentioned this, um, we're asking our community to um, pray that this kind of spirit would be at work through us, in us and through us. I've talked about Acts 2, asking, would you pray, would you go to Acts 2, 42 through 47, and would you pray and ask Jesus to give us that? To give us that. And could we say, Lord, I believe you want to use me in Washington, D.C., just like you used Philip. And we're just going to try to turn off the, all the reasons why it ain't going to work. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this um, marvelous account that you've preserved for us through your book. We pray that you would um, fill us with your spirit, that we might share the grace that we've tasted and feasted on. In Christ's name, amen.